Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here with me. I am back in New York City, so back in the home base of all things Freedom Hut. And very much looking forward to talking to you today about everything that's going on across the country and around the world. 844-900-BUCK, if you would like to call in, 844-900-2825. Today's one of these days where it's much harder than uh, I would like it to be to focus on policy because there are so many uh, fights that are underway right now about, well, politics and about the narrative and the back and forth over what was said or who believes what was said out of context or taken out of context. And there's just so much of a focus right now on uh, issues that become much more about who you believe and who you want to believe than making the country better for all of us, uh, than handling the big issues and spending the time, energy, and resources of the White House, and yes, even of the media, to focus on what really matters. Now we're stuck in this back and forth uh, on what was said, and I wasn't there, but I want to say this. Why don't we, instead of just walking through all of the latest on this because there's more and more information that's just coming out about what this person said about Trump and his comments with regard to a phone call to the family of a fallen special forces soldier, what a congresswoman said about the call, what another gold star family said about the call. Uh, I, I just wish that there would be less uh, of a, of a frenzy uh, within the administration, around the administration, and within the administration, to get into some of these battles that I think are a these media battles that are a distraction. Um, this is now the biggest story in the country. This is the main story on the Drudge Report. This is the main story on countless other major media outlets that you could look at right now. It's the main story on FoxNews.com. It's the main story on CNN.com. I was on uh, the. Uh, Fox panel uh, on Brett Baer's show earlier in the week, and he asked me about Trump's initial comments uh, on the... Now, this wasn't about Gold Star. uh, This wasn't about the Gold Star family that was called by Trump on the way to the airport uh, to receive uh, the remains of a fallen soldier uh, of of their... uh, of the husband. Uh, I know the wife was in the vehicle, and there was also a congresswoman who was within earshot who's gotten into this. But earlier in the week, Trump said something about how other administrations have not made calls. And that's 
not accurate. So they tried to walk it back a little bit, I think. And it was Trump doing what he does, which sometimes is such an an asset and sometimes is a liability, which is just speaking his mind without necessarily being all that precise about every single word that he uses. But now this has turned into yet another political football. Now, Now we see that the... Uh, media is going overboard to insist that Trump is cold, that he's unfeeling, that he does not have a sympathy and the deepest respect for the families of those who uh, are fallen in, uh, have fallen in battle. And I, I don't buy that as a just as as a general concept. I do not believe that there is anything about uh, President Trump that makes me think anything other than the fact that he has the deepest respect for the military. I know that he has said some things here and there that people have said, oh, how could he? But they say this about everything. And the Democrats for a long time, the left for many years now, for as long as I've been paying attention to politics, have have always Yes, they, there's this, we support the troops, and that's a bipartisan statement that you'll get from Democrats and Republicans, of course. But it's Democrats, you know, we support the troops, but we don't support the war. You know, we support the troops, but we think that sometimes the troops are, in, you know, the, the, the troops have done something that we're going to now make a, a bigger deal about than we should because it's going to sell copies of the Washington Post and New York Times. Whatever it may be, if you're looking for one political party that is more questionable in its support of the armed forces, you could find a lot more politicians on the Democrat side than you can on the Republican side who have seemed to be either overcritical or wavering in their support for the troops. But this has always been, ever since that exchange with uh uh, or that's exchange between Trump and John McCain, what was it, last summer? Or maybe it was even before then. Uh, I have to say, the uh, the Gold Star uh, father who was speaking at the DNC convention, and that also factored in very much to this narrative that Trump does not care about the military, that the media is trying very, very hard to go with. You see, I, I take this all in a, in a context. And here's the context. Depending on the month, the president of the United States, according to the media complex, right, the Democrat media establishment, uh, according to what they have been reporting so far this year, Trump is a, is a and this is not an exaggeration, and you know this, Trump is a would-be fascist along the lines of a Mussolini or a Hitler. Uh, Trump is a Russian uh, double agent of sorts, uh, a Manchurian candidate. You know, Trump is is that. Trump is also a an alt-right white supremacist. Uh, Trump is a, uh, oh, recently, this, this was uh, in between some of the other ones. Trump is a, a serial, not just a sexual harasser, but sexual assaulter. Uh, and now Trump doesn't care about the military. Now, there are really only two ways to look at all of this. And I'm stepping back from the specifics of this case right now because, or the specifics of this one incident, which, as I said, as I go on air here, this is what, this is what the whole country is now talking about. 
yeah, there's a little bit on tax reform. Yeah, there's a little bit on health care and, you know, Bannon's war with McConnell within the GOP. Then there's other stuff we will get to. I want to talk to you about the Islamic State. But right now, as I go on air, biggest story, most focus, most focus is on this, is on what Trump said to the widow of a fallen soldier while she was uh, on the way to the airport to collect the, the body of a fallen American hero. But stepping back from the specifics of the word, I was not there. I'm reading conflicting reports. The White House is saying no. They're saying it's appalling and disgusting, um, that this is not true. And, you know, I, I don't know. Now I'm also reading that General Kelly was with Trump when he made the call. And so I guess we'll get more details on this shortly. But in the meantime, as I laid out for you, Trump is just going back to what's happened over the course of the year. Trump is a white supremacist. He is a... Trump is a, is a rapist, he's a fascist, a white supremacist, a Russian agent. A, I mean, this is either the most evil human being to have ever, you know, ever even thought of being a president in this country, uh, who, who is, he is so many things that are evil, according to the media, that it's actually not humanly possible, I think. And this is why I look at this, and once again, I say to myself, they're just in a state of, of delusion and really a state of derangement about this commander-in-chief. They refuse to believe that they're going to have to live with this, and they refuse to accept that they're going to have to live with this reality of Trump as president for even four years. They will not see this through. They will not sit back and watch what happens. They, being the media, will take an active role in this, along with the Democrats. You want to talk about collusion. You've got media Democrat Party collusion happening all the time. And they just every month there's another narrative. Sometimes it's a return to an old narrative, but it's another narrative about how Trump is just a monster who is beyond the pale. So I put it to you, what is more likely that they are delusional and they are caught up in their hatred and that's affecting their perception of everything they report about this administration or that Trump can be all of those things? Rapist, fascist, sexist, misogynist, Nazi supporting. I mean, you, you just go down this list. I mean, come Russia, stooge, all of this. No reasonable, rational person can really make the argument to me. I mean, they might try it when no one's around, but I, I would love to hear it, that he's really all of these things. And also, no reasonable, reasonable rational person could in good faith. Now, people will do this, I think, for political reasons. They'll do it. For the pursuit of power, but they cannot make a good faith argument that individuals, you and me and those who are watching this all play out, all these different versions of the, oh, my gosh, Trump is so terrible, which is what this is. Oh, oh, my. Oh, my. No, now it's too much. Now it's too far. We saw this during the campaign. Everything is too far. Everything is too much. Do I think the president makes mistakes? Of course. Do I think he should have said what he said earlier in the week? No, I said so on TV. Said, the guy's got to stay on message a little more. This is not helpful. It's not good. It's not good for anybody. And yeah, there is something sacred that every president, every administration, and, and every government employee uh, should feel about the conversations between a commander-in-chief and uh, those who are the families of the fallen, Gold Star families. I mean, that's... So I'm I agree. I'm for all I'm, I'm with all that. I get all of that. But I just can't help but step back from this and say, so So now it's that Trump hates the military, too. 
we don't we don't really we're not expected to believe this, right? I, I guess we are. I, I can't tell if it's more of a catharsis for these media outlets that are running with it. It's just they, they can't help themselves now and they have to just blurt it out. Almost like somebody, some of these major newsrooms, it feels like they have to just take a paper bag and scream all these anti-Trump slurs and expletives into it just to get it out of their system. But they're going to run with this and run with this. And the lack of discipline, the lack of messaging discipline from the White House doesn't make it any easier for anybody. You know, this is just this is the reality right now. So, I mean, I I don't know. I'm wondering what you think about this. Um, Well, we have a uh, just as this reminded me of it uh, because we're talking about issues that touch on uh, being uh, on veterans and and those who served. Uh, We have Jason Delgado joining us later, who's a Marine uh, scout sniper and a fantastic interview. Uh, that I think you'll really, uh, really want to hear coming up later on in the show. And I, I'm curious for those those of you who, and, I, and I'm always humbled and uh, deeply grateful for the fact that I have so many people who listen to the show who either are serving or did serve. And so when I ask, I can get people to call in and say, you know, what do you think about this? What do you make of this? I find it hard to believe that Trump said what, he is accused of saying here by the media. I find it hard to believe. I just, it doesn't add up to me. And, you you know, when you've got so many different narratives running that are exaggerated, I'm not saying Trump maybe didn't say some of the words they're reporting, but in the way that it's being portrayed, I just don't buy it. Because I under, the the Trump mentality and, you know, maybe it's because he's a guy, I feel like I, I know him a little bit because he's a, like me, he's a New Yorker and, he has a certain certain way about him that I, I at least I'm not saying I'm similar, but I'm saying I have a, an understanding of it, an appreciation for it. He's a New York guy. We, we, we love cops. We love military. We love firefighters in this city. I mean, that's just that's ing- I mean, I know across the country that's too, uh, true as well. But this is the place where, you know, do I think Trump maybe sometimes says some things that are undisciplined about uh, the economic numbers or something? Yeah, sure. But. Do I think he would disrespect the military? No way. I just don't, I don't buy it. So given how many times the media has lied, and given how desperate they are to prove that Trump is literally the worst person in the history of the universe, I'm, I'm taking anything that I see right now with, with a grain of salt. Uh, and I know there's a lot more coming in, but those of you who served, uh, am I missing something? Do you think, do you think there is a problem here that I'm not, I'm not highlighting? I want to hear it from you. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We're going to talk about the Russia revelations, which I mentioned to you yesterday. We'll get into that. Also, a story about a an illegal immigrant teenager and a federal judge weighing in on whether the illegal immigrant teenager should, while in U.S. custody, uh, be given an abortion. I mean, this is a story that raises some real questions about this country, or at least the people in this country that take certain positions. I have proof, too. This man is a sick man. Uh, He's cold-hearted, and he feels no pity or sympathy for anyone. This is a grieving widow, a grieving widow who is six months pregnant. This is a young woman. She's only 24 years old. She weighs maybe 110 pounds, and she has two other kids, two years old and six years old. And when she actually hung up the phone, she looked at me and said, He didn't even know his name. Now, that's the worst part.
That's Representative Frederica Wilson referring to uh, President Trump's conversation with the uh, widow of one of the uh, fallen Special Forces soldiers who were killed in action in Niger recently. Uh, Trump says that that's just not true. Didn't say what that congresswoman said. Didn't say it at all. She knows it. And she now is not saying it. I did not say what she said. And uh, I'd like her to make the statement again because I did not say what she said. I had a very nice conversation with the woman, with the wife, who is sounded like a lovely woman. Did not say what the congresswoman said. And most people aren't too surprised to hear that. Let let her make her statement again, and then you'll find out. Okay, let her make her statement again, and then you'll find out. So the president just flatly denies this this allegation from uh, Congresswoman Wilson. And you also had Sarah Huckabee Sanders talking about the proof that Trump mentioned. Trump says he can prove it. I think he meant most likely based on the recent, most recent reports as I go on air here that General Kelly was with him when the call was made. But here is what Huckabee Sanders said. It's been on the president's tweet this morning, if we can. Uh, what proof does President Trump have when he says Congresswoman Wilson is not telling the truth? Are there recordings of his phone call with Maisha Johnson? No, but there were several people in the room uh, from the administration that were on the call, including the chief of staff, General John Kelly. So... Maybe they're not going to ask General Kelly, but, you know, General Kelly, who's he, he's a he's a gold star dad. And you know that's been brought into all these discussions now about, you know, everyone. What is this? What do the Democrats think is going to be accomplished by this reporting stream? Uh, I also see here on The New York Post that there is a story about. The grieving dad of, of an army corporal killed in Afghanistan said that President Trump promised to send him a personal check for $25,000, but didn't follow through until Wednesday. Uh, OK, well, so um, Chris Baldridge, the father of 22-year-old army corporal Bill, uh, Dylan Baldridge, told The Washington Post Trump called him at his home in North Carolina weeks after his son and two soldiers were gunned down by Afghan police. He said, I'm going to write you a check out of my personal account. And I was just floored. And... Okay, so the check was mailed on Wednesday. Um, so Trump was was late in sending this. I mean, this is this is now the, the whole country is focused on how the president is responding to this. Uh, all these different allegations. Who's telling the truth? We've got every line here lit. So I, I want to go to a bunch of calls. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. All right, Jesse in Michigan. Welcome to uh, the Buck Sexton Show, my friend. What's up? Jesse? Hey, how you doing? Yeah, I'm here. I'm doing really good. Good to be on your show. I'm not sure what I can add that, uh, you know, up to your standards, but I did want to say that, uh, you know, this is the same narrative that the Democrats have always been pushing um, all along across the board. It's spread the lies as fast as possible and wait for the truth to catch up. I mean, it's been going on for years. So you just think they're lying about this? Well, I don't necessarily think they're lying, but they're not coming out and saying, um, you know, the Muslims or whoever he was fighting in, in, at war are, are the ones that are responsible for, ultimately for his death. 
they're more pointing the finger at what happened afterwards instead of who's actually the culprit behind what actually happened. Well, they're obviously trying to score political points here, and they don't care what they, you know, the Democrats don't care who they bring into this or what they use as leverage. Anything that can be used as leverage against Trump, the Democrats will use. There's nothing that is sacrosanct. There's nothing that is uh, beyond the polluting effects of Democrat politicization. I, I think that was a very well way to put that. It's <laughs> thank you, effect. Jesse. Exactly. I, I do what I can. Uh, thank you very hey, much. for call- th- Thank you for calling in. Yeah, you're welcome. Right. Jerry in Florida. Good to have you, Jerry. What's up? Hey, Buck. Um, I'm Jerry. I'm a retired Air Force Colonel, F-15 fighter pilot. I was driving home from work, and I was so upset, I had to pull over. I have gone to the services of so many of my wingmen where the, those exact words have been said. He knew what he signed up for. Not only did he sign up for that, but his whole family signed up for that. We signed up that we were willing to give our lives for our country, and for somebody to make a political issue out of that is totally disgraceful. I, I, I'm, I'm so upset, I, I just I, I, I don't know what else to say. Well, I think, Jerry, you've said all that needs to be said on this issue because you're telling me that you think there's nothing wrong with those words. You served your country. You've heard many others who served their country say he knew or she knew what you know what they were signing up for. And No, it's not that there's nothing wrong with those words. If I had died while I was serving the Air Force, I would want those words spoken at my, at my funeral because I knew what I was giving up, what I was signing up for. I knew I was dedicating to my, my life to my country. I was willing to give my life to my country. My family made so many sacrifices. We knew what we signed up for. That, those are words of honor, not disgrace. Totally agree with you, Jerry. Totally agree with you. So uh, thank you for your service, sir, and thank you very much for your call. Patsy in North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Patsy. Hi there, Buck. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for your call. Thank you. And I just want to applaud what Gary just said. Um, the whole point of my call was to say that both of my brothers served over 20 years in the Air Force. My son also serves, uh, served in the Army, is out now. And um, the use of those words, like Gary said, that is such honor. And if President Trump did say that, I'm not saying he did or he didn't, but the fact that he would use them and then tell her how he felt about that and how he was honored to have people like that, you know, in our armed services, that would be the only way that I could think that he would say something like that. Yeah, I just look at the situation and and like I was saying before, I I refuse to uh, I refuse to believe that based on what I've been told, the president would say anything that was disrespectful uh, to the family of to the the widow of of a slain soldier. I just I just don't. There's there's no explanation for that. That Trump doesn't yeah. feel that way, right? I mean, Trump isn't disrespectful towards military and towards the families of those who are serving. So why would he in a phone call like that? I, it just it just doesn't add up, you know. Yeah, it it is just totally taken out of context. Like I said, if he did say it and he said it that way, that is nothing but honorable. And um, I just there is way more to this than what we're okay. hearing, uh, and it's just inciting. I, Patsy, thank you so much, and Shields High, I appreciate you calling in. Uh, let me just here's my my gut instinct on this one, Congresswoman. Frederica Wilson 
is somebody who in the past has said, for example, that the, you know, the Tea Party is the is the real enemy. That was some years ago. Uh, so she's she's someone who uh, is is a very a hardline political player, right? very partisan. She is with this uh, gold star, uh, gold star widow, and I, I believe that she is the one. Meaning Congresswoman Wilson. Uh, I will check into this in the break to make sure that I'm not speaking out of turn here. Live radio. Three hours every day, you know, not everything I say is going to be 100%, but I always make sure I correct it if it's not. Uh, But I believe that Wilson was the first one to come out and say that there was something disrespectful here. And that may have, look, you're dealing with somebody who's just lost her, or in in terms of the widow, somebody who just lost her husband, she's got children. I believe, I saw this right when I came into the office, that the... Uh, GoFundMe campaign for the children for their college fund and to take care of them is is a, is over four hundred and thirty or four hundred and fifty thousand dollars something like that already. So the American people, I mean, this is an aside, but the American people are an incredibly generous, an incredibly generous people, and and love our military. So no surprises there. That's exactly what we would expect. Uh, but with this congresswoman, by saying that Trump was disrespectful. Did she then influence the because I know that the the widow uh, as well of Sergeant Johnson, the widow has also said that there was something uh, she didn't like what Trump said or that there was it was disrespect, I believe, is the specific. Maisha Johnson is the the name of the widow of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. And she says that she felt there was something disrespectful with Trump or in his tone. Now, of course, look, she's a she's a she's a gold star widow. uh, She's completely entitled to more than just her opinion, she's entitled to a lot of deference and respect right now and going forward. But that also doesn't mean that we can't stop for a moment and think, well, was she influenced at least by this congresswoman who's with her, who goes out and says this, and then creates a, a very high-pressure situation whereby especially if, you know, if we're talking about... Um, Somebody who, in the, with this congresswoman, for example, who's clearly very anti-Trump, she's now put a private citizen in the center of this whole storm, and there's a lot of pressure there. There's a lot of pressure. So is is that possible? I, I just think that's a um, that's a that's a situation that people need to keep in mind here. That possibility. We have uh, Pat on right now from Alabama, who is a gold star mom. Pat, thank you so much for calling in. Hello? Yes. Hey, Pat, how you doing? Fine, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much we for your call. We talked before, but this time it's serious. And uh, I, I want to say that uh, uh, my son did know what he was doing. Both of my sons knew what, know what they're doing. And, in fact, uh, David was killed in Bakuba. In 2005, and Brian, his uh, younger brother, who was four years younger, was uh, in Baghdad at the time, and he was uh, David's escort home. So you completely agree with this, with the sentiments of, and and you are, you are a gold star mom, as as uh, as I know, yeah. our, you just told our producers here, uh, you agree with the sentiment yeah. that they knew what they were, or. or 
to say he knew or 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 she knew, you know, depending on the circumstances, to say to say that someone knew what they were signing up for with the military is to honor the fact that they were doing it, understanding the risks and wanting to serve their country anyway. They were committed. Both my sons know what they were doing since they were two years old. And uh, my younger son, in fact, is a West Point grad. And uh, so, uh, Pat, I think believe I, me, yeah, no uh, soldier, no, no soldier or sailor, marine or air force uh, would would disagree with what was said. Trust me. Well, Pat, thank you for your family's service and your family's sacrifice, and also thank you very much for shedding some very important light on this conversation right now. Thank you, Pat. Uh, Brent in uh, Brent in New Mexico on the iHeart app. Hey, Brent. Hey, Buck. Shield tie. Shield tie. Hey, man. It's hard to follow up somebody like Pat. Uh, my respect to her. But um, you, you pretty much hit it on the head. I called in, and then you start talking about it. I, I found it odd when I was reading the news this morning, and, and she was – this uh, congresswoman was talking like she'd heard it on speakerphone and she was with this woman on the way. And that whole thing struck me as odd. Like they were just like she was kind of coached. I mean, 24 year old girl. And I can't imagine. But I mean, it is odd to me. It's the first thing I noticed when I read about her. in this. Right. I mean, she she gets Im- immediately caught in the middle of this. My understanding is the congresswoman is the one who created this whole uh, of, you know controversy. And she, the congresswoman, is is as anti-Trump. I mean, the congresswoman hates Trump, right? So we all know that. And she's uh, obviously has some kind of relationship with this gold star uh, widow, with with Mrs. Johnson. And it, it just seems to me like you know now this has been turned into something, and it's it's hard for some people even who just want to have some some uh, uh, you know time to reflect and and be allowed. Uh, dignity and the ability to heal. I mean, for a woman to be pulled into this seems to be really unfair. Uh, and, and I think that the person who pulled her into it is Congresswoman Wilson. So that's that's what I see. But I, I'm not there. I'm just basing it on the reports like all the rest of us are. Couldn't agree more, Buck. It, I agree with you 100%, man. All right, man. Thank you very much, Brent, for calling in. Um, all right, let's. Uh, I'm going to get into some other topics here because I I don't know what what more there is really to add now other than you've got a, a war of words between the administration, a congresswoman, and the media. Uh, there's a lot of, of I said this, no, I didn't say this. Uh, this is you know one more thing on this. I like I, I'm somebody who's like I like to think that I'm pretty good at noticing um, a pattern. I like to think that um, I'm pretty good at picking out when there's a uh, a repetition of a theme or a repetition that is a theme. And with this, you see, what was it, well, a week or two ago? What was the big story? Someone said, according to someone, that Rex Tillerson called the president a moron. And that was a big thing for a few days. And now here it's... Someone, or in this case, we know who it is. Uh, Representative Wilson says that Trump was disrespectful, didn't know the fallen soldier's name, and also said he knew what he signed up for and, and is taking that to be negative. Very negative. To taking it to be disrespectful. I agree with the sentiments of those who have called in and said that he, he knew what he signed up for in the context of the discussion was meant, assuming it was said, uh, was meant to be respectful. 
And the fact that this is now turning into a major media story and everyone's running around trying to figure out, you know, how to turn this into clicks and views and political points and everything else. It's just it's just disconcerting. You'd think that this is one of the few areas where we could just truly and I know people say this and, you know, people will say this about the NFL. They'll say, you know, can't we put politics aside when it comes to the families of fallen soldiers? It really would be nice if we could just put politics aside and just all show respect and deference and support. But instead, here we are being forced to look at this through this distorted prism of the political ins and outs. So it's just non. It's just not the way it should be done. All right, I, I w- we've got Russia stuff to talk about. We've got some policy things. I've got that story about the uh, illegal immigrant girl who is a, is a teenager, I believe, who was wants to have an abortion. That's in federal court right now, or a federal judge just looked at it. And uh, you'll be very interested, I think, to hear about how the judge responded to the government's position on it. And then we've got some more Trump on the economic issues, which we'll talk about, um, the tax plan. So much to discuss beyond this issue that I can see is, is dominating the uh, dominating the evening news. We've said all along that we want something that doesn't just bill out the insurance companies, but actually provides relief for all Americans. Uh, and this bill doesn't address that fact. So we want to make sure that that's taken care of. Uh, we think that this is the step, a good step in the right direction. Uh, this president certainly supports Republicans and Democrats coming to get to work together. Uh, but it's not a full approach, and we need something to go a little bit further to get on board. Can you articulate specifically what the White House is concerned about? And uh, some of the things that the president... about outreach dollars and making sure that the yes. money is good. Through. Some of the things that the president has stated before, he wants to lower premiums, he wants to provide greater flexibility, he wants to drive competition, he likes the idea of block grants to states. Those are a lot of the ideas that he'd like to see in a health care plan. That's the update on our discussion yesterday that had to do with where the administration is right now where the White House is on what seems to be a bailout of the insurance companies, right? Giving I'm not a bailout of the sense that they're all going to go bankrupt, but I mean, giving them cash to shore up the exchanges. This was the bipartisan fix, so to speak, that the Senate had come up with. It's certainly not repeal and replace. It's not even changing anything about Obamacare. In fact, it's keeping Obamacare alive. It's just doing it through a legitimate legislative process instead of doing it via executive fiat. But still not so not not great. Not great. Now, Trump also spoke on this today and gave a little more detail here. Well, we'll see, we'll see the bipartisan. We're going to see the bipartisan and uh, Lamar Alexander's uh, working on it very hard from our side. And if something can happen, that's fine. But I won't do anything to enrich the insurance companies because right now the insurance companies are being enriched. They've been enriched by Obamacare like nothing anybody's ever seen before. So he's saying he's not going to make the insurance companies richer. Okay, so I guess that's. You know, that that's a good soundbite. I don't really know what it means in terms of our health care reform, because if he's going to keep the money flowing to the exchanges, that means insurance companies are still getting to operate within the Obamacare framework, which has done very well for insurance companies. It has not been uh, difficult for insurers under Obamacare. And we've been 
promised uh, a lot and very little has been delivered. It is still early. I well understand that. And uh, there was also some discussion today with the president at the uh, Senate Finance Committee talking about his tax plan. I wanted to get into that as well. Here are some of the highlights from our framework. We are doubling the amount of income that is taxed at the zero bracket. In other words, the zero bracket, many people will be able to take advantage of that bracket that are not in that bracket. We're increasing the child tax credit. We will end the estate tax, sometimes referred to as the death tax. We will cut the business tax rate from the highest in the developed world at 35% to no more than 20%. According to the Council of Economic Advisors, reducing the corporate tax rate from 35 to 20% would increase average household income by $4,000 a year. So each household, on average, would take in $4,000, and they'll go out and they'll spend that money, and that'll be great for the economy. We're cutting taxes on small businesses to the lowest rate in more than 80 years. We're going to have to tackle this tax plan a little more maybe in the next uh, in the next hour because I think some of the numbers are a little fuzzy. I like the ideas, but the numbers are a little fuzzy. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back, team. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK if you would like to call in. Love to hear from you as always. Um, we've got uh, some lines lit. We can take some more calls if you want to give us a ring. I wanted to finish some thoughts on the. there was just minor forward motion on some of the major policy issues, which I'd much rather talk to you about. You know, I, I will say there are a couple of ways that I try to take a different approach from most of the, not just uh, talk radio shows out there, but just conservative media in general. One of them is I, I don't find every aspect of the political horse race, you know, what's the latest senator saying about this or what's this? Or, I, I don't find that as, as fascinating. I don't find the personalities within the Congress uh, quite so fascinating. I care much more about what's happening in the country. So instead of, oh, did you hear that you know, Senator so-and-so said this about something? I'd much rather talk to you about uh, what's going on in the country, uh, what's happening in healthcare markets, what's going on with the opioid epidemic, what's happening with chronic pain, what's the reality of you know, uh, the role of the NFL in American life as a unifying force or a dividing force now, whatever. Right? I'm going to talk to you about what's happening instead of just the inside-the-beltway nonsense. Um, and uh, that's that means that I'd rather talk about uh, policy issues. I'd rather talk about the uh, national security events that are happening as well and all that. Anyway, so there's not a lot that I can say that's new about the healthcare state of play, as it were, uh, other than Trump seems today to be less clear on whether he likes this bipartisan solution or not. And then, which, look, I understand there's still a lot that needs to be hammered out and it's going to take some time and this is just not going to be a quick fix. On taxes, though, this is where, and I'm not the only one who's been out there saying this, and I get that, or or I will have said this now. I think I've said this before. I've uh, certainly asked the question before on this and other shows. The notion that the tax plan, even assuming that Trump got it through 
as is or as offered, that it would mean $4,000 more on average in your pocket. I don't know about that. You will notice that the change in actual rates, in actual tax rates, is a minimal part of the discussion for people that are just used to paying federal income tax. Doubling the amount of untaxed income, I I don't know how much that's going to benefit folks, but keep in mind that already you have half the country doesn't pay any taxes, any federal income tax whatsoever. So getting you instead of from zero to 10, zero to 20,000, no taxes. Okay. Uh, I'd like to see what they think the math will be then for individuals that will be beneficial and, and how beneficial it will be. The main thrust of it is that they will cut the corporate tax rate, and this is going to help you. If corporations have more cash on the balance sheet, it will help you. If corporations are able to bring back overseas assets, overseas cash, uh, then there will be a a flourish of hiring and investment, and and that will be better for all of us. I mean, that that's the way that. As I understand it, at least, they're talking about this tax plan and how it's going to benefit individual Americans. I am not as confident that that will be a widely, and and I know uh, the one and only uh, Mr. Limbaugh himself addressed this issue earlier in the week, but I've been thinking this for a long time. I think I've said it before on this show. Cutting a corporate tax rate sounds good, and I think it will be helpful. But I have some misgivings. I, I have some hesitation about that being the at the vanguard of what is supposed to be a populist, pro-earning class political revolution. Yeah, that's right. We're going to take care of the middle class. We're going to cut the corporate tax rate. Okay, maybe that's maybe that's all to the good. But why not? Why can the corporate rate? Go and I'm look. I'm asking the questions, right? I it's easy to see that oh, Trump is perfect and amazing, and you know I I leave that to others. I don't, I don't, uh, I I just I just can't play the everything Trump does is great game. It's just not what I do. I don't, I don't have it in me. I think a lot of what he does is good, and I support him. But and this isn't just Trump. Keep in mind, he's working with the Congress on this. So this isn't even like he's getting a, uh, he's getting a carte blanche to do whatever he wants he's going to have to work this issue through the congress and let's just think about this why is it why is it that four thousand dollars is going to end up in your pocket if the corporate rate goes from 35 to 20 percent they said right no or 30 30 percent to 20 percent it was going to be 15 now they've gone up to 20 but you you know the highest individual rate and the individual rate for a lot of people is still going to be way above 20 percent and not for rich people. And that's, that's where the Democrats are always going to be lying. Oh, it's for rich people. It's for the rich. No, no, no. For a whole lot of folks, the rate is, the individual rate's going to be high. And that's where the real squeeze is. That's where the tax code is such a joke. It's so unfair. It's punitive. It's on the individual rates. And I'm, I know that they're talking about simplification. And this is where if I had somebody here, oh, but Trump, you know, he's, they're going to say there's going to be, what, three rates instead of five? Okay, but. Who falls into the three? Who falls into what rate? If you're making between fifty and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, fifty and two hundred thousand dollars a year, let's say, 
are are you going to be affected by this tax cut in a really positive way? From what I'm seeing, probably not. And I'm going to guess that of the folks listening, uh, there's there's a lot of you that have a house. I mean, look, the average American household income is fifty grand, roughly. It's in the I think it might be in the it's either like forty seven or fifty three. It's around there. It's roughly fifty thousand dollars. I think it's forty eight thousand. Uh, how much is this tax plan really going to benefit you? You know, if your household income is a little le- a little less, a, a little more, maybe you know you've got two people working, you're making a household income of a hundred, a hundred and fifty, and you're doing well, but a lot of places across the country, the, the tax rate that you have to deal with if you're making 100 or 150 grand, it's just too much. So why can't we touch on that? Why isn't there more of a push on not just the individual rates and concept, but what the specifics are? And I'll tell you, there's a problem here because the the revenue, which is a nice way of saying the money the government takes from you, does not it actually is in people that are earning. 50 to 250, you know, that, that, that's where they have a lot. That's when you add in all the different taxes and all the different uh, consumption taxes and everything else. I mean, that's where the, cause that's where a vast majority of the, you know, American people fall. And once you, if you drop it down a little bit and up it a little bit, you know, let's say it's 25 K a year to 250 K. I mean, that's like, you know, a vast majority of us, right? So what are we paying? Now, a corporate rate, okay, they say the corporate rate's going to be better. I need someone to explain. Why is it that the corporation that now is going to have a lower tax rate isn't just going to pay its executives more? You know, we did go through this whole situation where the government, back in the financial crisis, made all of these banks. Some of them needed it, some of them didn't, but there was a reason behind the, why they made them all take it, which is that they didn't want people to to, to, discriminate, to think that you know one bank was weak and one was strong because it took the money. So they wanted all, all of them had to take this money. And then they were going to loan it out, right? But actually, a lot of banks didn't really loan it out the way they were supposed to. And you know what? They were that, that was kind of their right. So are we really so sure that people are going to get paid more? I, I'm just skeptical. I'm not saying no. I'm not saying that, you know, this is wonky stuff and you get people out with all the spreadsheets and Excel and everything. But I am skeptical because to me, why not? You know, if we're going to really reform the tax code instead of just cut some taxes here and there, why not a flat tax? Why are we not even talking about it? Five rates to three rates? Okay, but, or what is it? Is it seven rates to five rates or five rates to three rates? I forget now. Uh, well, Amy's on, Amy's on a call right now with, uh, with one of you. So um, It's just not as, uh, as the first major legislative achievement of what is a Trumpian and supposed to be populist political movement that is against the establishment cutting corporations taxes just doesn't sit quite right with me as the this is the first place we're going not getting a wall not doing anything important or dramatic on immigration and continuing a pretty well continuing with the most of the the look at the trade deals where we haven't had anything really changed there the first place we get real movement from the administration, or not just from the administration, pardon me, from the Republican Party, it looks like something's going to get done, is on the corporate tax rate. Guys, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just keeping it 100% real here. It's what I do. I'm not loving this. I think, uh, I think that there's an issue here. 
I think the donor I think the donor class still has a lot more influence and, and a lot more leverage than many of us want to believe because you know the donor class is going to love it. If you are a senior officer of a corporation, you're going to have a lot more profits now to work with. That is great for you and great for those who sit in the compensation committee, which exists at a lot of companies, right? They just decide what a lot of people get paid. Cuz a lot of it's bonus based and everything else, so you know, I look I'm just putting it out there. And when we come back, we'll talk about the uh, testimony today in front of the Jeff Sessions throwing down with, uh, what's his name, Stuart, uh, I mean, Al Franken. Um, and then we'll get into, uh, we've got Jason Delgado, who's a MARSOC, a Marine sniper, who's going to call and talk to us about his book, which is fantastic. I've been waiting to have him on for a long time, actually. He'll tell you... Uh, uh, all about his book when he comes to join us. And uh, then, oh, third hour, I should note, we will do a kind of a special history deep dive. For those of you who like it, get excited, because third hour is going to be a bit of a history deep dive. For those of you who don't, just just give it a shot. Give it, give it another chance. And if, and if after this time around, you're like, you know what, Buck? Live radio, deep dive, I don't know. You know, on history, I don't know. NATSEC, yeah. And the national security deep dives, I'm pleased to say, Team Buck is on board for those across the board from what I from what I have ever, you know, gathered in my years of doing radio. Um, history is maybe a little more of a uh, of an acquired taste, but uh, we're going to go there. May we be sure it'll taste fantastique in the third hour. So get ready for that. All right, Brian in North Carolina calling in WPTI. How you doing? Hey, Buck. Thanks for taking the call. Doing great. Hope you are. Thank you. Hey, uh, your last segment you were talking about uh, basically trickle down economics and. Let's just assume that uh, you make strong six figures a year, and maybe I make thirty to fifty k. You know, just a regular working stiff. If your toilet or your shower goes out, how many plumbers does that guy making three, five times what I make? They hire one plumber. So in a day to day, how we interact and hire people trickle down doesn't really seem to work. Therefore, core cutting corporate taxes, who benefits? It's the investors, right? It's the CEOs, the uh, the board members. It's the the 1, 2%, 3%. It doesn't trickle down. And uh, so I just dissent with you on that. Well, you dissent with me. I think that's kind of what I was saying. Remember, I was talking about how I'm, I'm skeptical that this is going to help people <laughs> the way that they say it is. Oh, well, then we agree. It, it <laughs> yeah. absolutely won't. You know, when a guy makes 2 to $3 million a CEO, where does he put that money? He doesn't spend it all. You know, when someone makes fifty k a year, they spend it on their rent, on their kid's college, on their health care. It goes back into and circulates through the economy. Um, the richer someone is, and that's fine to be rich. No one's harping on that. Uh, it gets invested. It's in savings. It's in uh, Wall Street, and it doesn't trickle down. Right. Well, I, I just think about how you know. Let's say I was, if I work in a company and I am part of a, a bonus pool situation, and now the company has, uh, you know, has ten uh, percent better earnings than we had we had expected because uh, you know because of the tax cut. Right. I mean, we're just we're fast forwarding through some things, assuming this gets passed and all. But sure. a lot of the folks that I mean, I know how this works at some companies. Uh, a lot of the folks out there will get more money 
right? I mean, who are, I'm going to say a lot of the folks, people that are working for corporations, they get a bigger bonus. But, you know, if I got a check that was 100% of my salary as a bonus because my company had more money, I, I'm not, then that's where the money goes, right? So, I mean, some people have more money, but a lot of people won't from what I see. So I'm just not seeing it. I'm not seeing it as clearly as some others are that this is going to have these wide-ranging impacts. I understand, right? We get somebody on, you know, the, 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 you get these, like, people that are almost like these um, free market laissez-faire evangelists. Who, it's always perfect, right? right? There's never any downside to this stuff. It's always amazing and just makes everything better. Um, but I, I wonder, um, I wonder if that's really the case because this just doesn't seem, it doesn't add up to me, you know, it doesn't add up, but you know, I'm not an accountant. What can I tell you? And, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a tax expert either. I just know that, can, can we agree on one thing, Brian, that the yeah. populist, that the populist revolution, so to speak of Trumpism, it's first, it's first stop is cutting the corporate tax rate is not, not really what I think we all signed up for. I mean, even if it's that's a good thing, not, this is... That's exactly right. You know, may, maybe it's the first of many great things, so okay, fine. But it's not that clear to me that this is, uh, is going to be as amazing as they say it is. So we'll see. We'll see. Thank you, Brian, for, for calling in. I appreciate it. Um, look, I, I understand if, if someone wants to call in and tell me the other side of the argument, I know if there's more money, then they invest more capital. But, but what if people just... Uh, don't people hold on to their capital sometimes? Don't companies keep a lot of money on the balance sheet? Maybe they'll keep a little more money. They'll pay their executives a little bit more. I, I see plenty of places where th- the decision about what people are getting paid is being made by other people, and just who has the who has the power to be in that boardroom versus who doesn't. It's not always. Oh, we're just going to pay all of our we're going to pay all of our workers more. I mean, maybe if there's so much more cash out there because this has such a huge impact on corporations across the board to have this lower tax rate, I am assuming there also will probably be some places where they can't write things off. And, you know, there'll be some trade-offs if they're going to get this lower rate. I'm sure Democrats will insist on that. So, all right, Tony thinks they're a win. Tony, tell me why this is a win. Tony! Yes, sir. Fuck, Shields, hi, Tony, uh, listening to you on uh, iHeartRadio. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. So so tell me why this tax thing is going to be good. All right, here's the thing. I, I heard your last caller, and I, I understand what he's saying, but all of us um, benefit when we get to keep more of our money, whether you're a rich corporate guy or whether you're somebody hammering out 50000 a year, because... Those people have kids, too. They build houses, too. When they build a house, they employ more people. When they take vacations because they got this huge ESOP bonus, whatever you want to call it, they spend it, and we all benefit. It's not as simple as some may think where they get all the money and I get, you know, nothing. I mean, it it benefits us all. It gets the economic, economic machine going. We may not see it every day of our life, but... That guy is spending that money. Even if he builds some rich mansion vacation home, people get employed. Okay. All right, Tony, thank you for listening, and thank you very much for your call. Michael in Florida also wants to weigh in on taxes. Hey, Michael. I appreciate everything you do. Uh, I was just about ready to wanted to reach to the radio on you on this one. <laughs> what happens is, is for let's say that $2,000 is saved in taxes. Uh, somebody has that 2000 to spend. They can spend it on anything. Now, think about it. Every time you buy something, 
there's, you know, from Home Depot, there's the distributor that brought it to Home Depot. So then that person's taxed at that level. There's the, the group that made it, and there might be two or three vendors that make parts of the item that it's assembled into. Each one of those folks has a little bit more money, and then they go, each has a little bit more money, and they get taxed. The per people that dug up the raw materials, they sell a little bit more, they have more money, they get taxed. So that's yeah. how the government I makes get you. I know, money. velocity of money, I get all this. But Michael, what, what if I just, like, park my bonus in my bank account? for the next five years, which I could if you do. Park your if you park your bonus in your bank account, that's one thing. If you park your bonus where, uh, first of all, the bank is using it, they're loaning it out. Other people get to do things with it. Second of all, if it's, if it's in a 401k, that money helps build yeah, the Yeah, businesses, company. no, I see and, it. All right, so you're, so you're saying it's a win. Michael's made a compelling case that it's a win no matter what. Um, all right, there we have it. See, thanks, team. Helping educate me on all this stuff, too. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. All right, team, welcome back. We have a special treat for you, special guest here today in studio in the Freedom Hut. We have Jason Delgado with us. He is an author and a former Marine. He's an Operation Iraqi Freedom lead sniper and co-author of the new book, Bounty Hunter 4-3, My Life in Combat from Marine Scout Sniper to Marsoc. Jason, great to have you, sir. Yeah, how you doing? Those titles are crazy. Every time someone introduces me on the radio, I got to tell them, you know, there's no such thing as like a lead sniper job. That's like my publicist, you know, they, they never really get it right. It's like Hollywood, right? You know, they always send these titles ahead of time. And <laughs> well, it's like with me, people sometimes on yeah. TV introduce me as like former CIA super secret yeah, squirrel ninja. And, like, and I'm like, I made some amazing lattes. Yeah. I wrote a lot of memos, but that's a whole yeah, separate, same here. I mean, a whole you know, separate I re story. I really didn't have no choice but to stay alive. You know what I mean? I don't know about top, but uh, I'm, I was okay, I guess, you know, but there was a ton yeah, of other well, guys. You were actually a guy on the front lines in combat. So I want to talk to you about nice. that and what's going on here with this book. First Thanks off, for having me, brother. Of course, man. First off, you are like me, a, uh, a New York City. A New York City native. That's right. And you well, grew I'm, up I'm in a actually, time when, when the city was a very. I even remember yes. very. I think we're about the same age. Very different place. It was, and it was it was pretty chaotic. Like, you know what the perception, I guess, of what most would uh, think of what New York is. That's definitely what it was when we were coming up back then. It was just psychoticness, you know. Um, and and I, I mentioned that in the book, or I bring that up in the book because. You know, I kind of want to um, I kind of want to bring people in to uh, my upbringing so that it could understand that by the time I already got into combat, I was sort of desensitized to that 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 violence or the blood bloodshed. You know, they got to the point where it was it was like something I could just, you know, witness and just kind of uh, move on from there and get into, a you know, a clear thought and push on or whatever. So was it fair to say that early on before you joined the Marines then you had. Uh, become not accustomed to, but at least had experience with the fight or flight response that one feels when one's uh, in yeah, real yes, danger. Of course, and, yes, of course. and and this is and this once again growing up. I mean, everybody wants to like everybody wants to like attribute their childhood to being something somewhat of a MMA gauntlet. You know, everybody wants to say that you know they were you know scrapping every day, but growing up in like New York City, it was literally scrapping every day. You know, and, you know, the older guys got you guys to, you know, fight all the time, instigating fights. And so it was you got used to that fight or flight real fast. And you realize the best way to deal with something is just to confront it, you know. <laughs> and uh, also, it's like w walking in the city. You you know this because you're from here. The more weakness you show, the more chances you're going to get, you know, picked on. And, you know, a lot of these predators are like hyenas. 
they only go to for the easy prey, the easy target. It was the same way. It was the same way growing up, you know. So you had to, you know, that's why New Yorkers, you know, we're we're um we're uh we have that uh I guess that stigmatism that we have that bravado, you know, that we walk around like you know we're that you know God's gift to you know the mean streets or whatever. But it's just a defense mechanism mechanism really. So tell me about the decision to join the Marines. How the how do you come about that, and what was it like when you first got in? So um, I guess the first like movement emotionally uh, of patriotism that happened within me was when I used to watch footage from like CNN or, you know, any other major like uh, news networks that would cover um, Desert Shield, uh, Desert Storm. And I would see like the night, you know, the the green hues of the night vision and the tracer rounds, you know, impacting the walls and just and something, you know, got in me. And I I just knew that I was going to be there. I had to be there. I don't know. It was maybe, um, you know, uh, uh, prophesizing at that moment. But just something happened where I said, man, if someone's there, I want to be there. You know, I I don't want to be left out of this. I just always had that sense of like duty since I was a young, uh, young, young kid. Really, I was like eleven, twelve. So how, how did you once you were in the Marine Corps? And we're speaking to Jason Delgado, author of a new book out that's doing really well, Bounty Hunter Four Three: My Life in Combat from Marine Scout Sniper to Marsoc. Uh, Jason, you're in the Marines already, elite, already storied warriors. How do you decide to become a scout sniper? That was my. I actually found out about scout snipers. And initially, and then I found out that the scout snipers were um, indicative to the Marine Corps. <laughs> so I read um, Carlos Hascock's book, and from there, I was in love with the culture. I guess with the uh, with the title and the and the job from the stories I've read, and I found out it was the Marine Corps. So to me, after that, there was no other choice. It had to be the Marine Corps. Um, I tried in other places because. I, you know, as far as recruiting, because I didn't think the Marine Corps was going to take me, but the Marine Corps, as soon as I walked in through the door, I don't know, it was just like destiny. Just things started falling into place, you know, difficult things as well. They just started falling in line for me to just naturally follow that path. Tell me about your first deployment into a war zone. Uh, wow. First deployment into a war zone. You got to understand that's that was America's first time into a combat zone, a, a, a no joke combat zone. Like we're invading a country in a long time, I want to say since Vietnam, you know, I mean, we've we've done other conflicts where it was like, you know, Panama and all that stuff. But this was like an entire military effort, you know, and everyone wanted to play in the big show. Everyone was eager. Everyone was excited. What I what I tell people is it's like you've been training um, basketball with the coach for years and never really got to play a real game. And then now you get wind that there's a there's a no joke real game happening and you might potentially start in it. So that's how it felt. It felt like everything we learn, everything we sacrifice, all our sweat and tears, it's, it's going to be for something, you know, and that's exactly what it was. And also, you got to understand, that's a big that's a big ball of emotion. You got that eagerness. You got that that energy that that just lust, that thirst to kill, you know, because that's what we harbor. And that's what we do to each other. That's how, that's the only way we're going to win wars. You know, I'm sorry to say it, but that's the fact of the matter. War is ugly. And you have to you have to revel in supreme violence of action in order to win. And that's what they that's what they harness in us. So you have that you're dealing with that, you know, and, and you get in country and you just find out everybody's like waving white flags and you and stuff. So it's nuts. But, you know, it, it's it's an emotional roller coaster in country. After the first deployment, I was so burnt out emotionally that I think the second deployment allowed me to think a lot clearer. 
which was in due time because as the time progressed, you know, the TTPs got worse, you know, with the IEDs and, you know, the, the rocket attacks. And, you know, it was just they were they were really going for numbers after that second after that first deployment. So I'm glad I kind of got all that over eagerness and excitedness out of the way so that I could start thinking calmly and clear for the now, next deployment. Tell me about the battle for Huseba. That was the worst freaking just thing that's ever happened to me. That really turned me into who I was. Subsequently, uh, the after effects of that as well. Um, I, I seen some pretty gruesome stuff up to that point, and I'm not saying it was the most gruesome stuff that I witnessed there, you know, but it was crazy. But it was the most exhausted, the most I feared for my life, the most I, I felt helplessness, the, the, the most uh, I was just vulnerable because you truly knew at any given time it could be yours, your time to go. And that was that was the overall feeling. So I guess emotionally, so uh, to compare that battle or to compare that deployment, because we it wasn't just that one day. It was a it was a, a slew of enemy activity for the entire time, so much so that it was just to the point where we became zombies emotionally. Tell us a little bit about the, just the background for those listening who don't who aren't familiar with. So you said so, it was a whole deployment as well as this one particular pitched battle for exactly. an area. Exactly. So the whole deployment, um, we took over the area from the army and um, Huseba. And we took over. Uh, it was it's an area in Al Qaim. Um, it's a small border Iraq, town. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's in, in Al Qaim, Iraq, and it's a small border town bordering um, Syria. And I get, I tell people I equivocate it to our Nogales. That's how crazy it is. That's where the drugs come in. That's where the weapons come in. That's where you know ca- bricks of cash come in to fund all types of illegal activities, not just terrorism, guys. You know, a lot of people want to attach that that religious aspect to what these people are doing. And I, I, I write in the book that it's a little bit more than that. It's a criminal organization. Like, that's what it is. And, you know, they they throw the taboo, uh, the, 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 the stigmatism of, of religion so that people think it to be taboo and kind of like stay away from it. You know, and I think that's what's happening. You know, they're starting to mix that into a religion. And now we're, we want to be hands off, but I'm off on a tangent. So that's what we're seeing. It's a hotbed of criminal activity. And we take over from the army. And I remember telling my guys, we're going to, it sucked because we were starting the camp from scratch. So we didn't have showers. We didn't have nothing. It was terrible. But CBs went in there and did their thing. But I was telling my guys, I say, don't worry. We're going to get out and forgive, forgive my language, people. You have to understand. I think I was uh, 21 at the time, 20, 20. And I was in charge of scout snipers. We're meat eaters. Okay. We're we're meat eaters. And I tell my guys, don't worry. We're going to go into this city. We're going to uh, reduce a few targets, you know, to be PC. And we're, we're going to show them who's boss. And they're not going to mess around. And we're going to have an easy deployment. I can't believe I said those words. I jinxed us. It was by far the most work I've ever done in my life. We went out for anywhere from 48, 72 hours. Come back for six eight, 12 hours and go back out again for another 48 hours. And this was nonstop for about six months straight. And it was conflict weekly. It was mortar attacks into the base weekly. Like the enemy went from 
um, or the enemy actually got to develop. At this point, you got to understand ISIS and Al-Qaeda started actually organizing with Zarqawi and all that over in Iraq at this time. So they started getting organized and we were there. So we were the first line of resistance for the organ- the, the structure of, of this new organization, or I guess the, the predecessors to what it is now. And we got a lot of brunt of it. We got the IEDs. We got the mortars. We got the rockets. It was nothing like the year before. It was nothing like the invasion. The invasion was white flags, parades, roses. They were bringing out, you know, big, huge plates of barzan rice. And it was, it was, wow, we're liberating this place. I, you know, we felt, you know, we felt like we were Caesar, you know, it was crazy. Um, and sure enough, we went into the occupation and that's that, that phase we went into the uh, hearts and mind phase, a campaign where we wanted to build and restructure and build uh, the infrastructure, the, the, the school houses and soccer balls and all that. And it just blew up in our face. They wanted to kill us. That's what it was. And it took us a while to shift from that position or that that stance from hearts and minds, soccer balls and playing with the kids and building the schools to, no, we're still in this fight. We have to survive. And that's that that was that. That was that moment that woke us up and said, oh, no, this war ain't over. It's still going down. You want more details, everybody? You should go get Bounty Hunter 4-3, My Life in Combat, Marine Scout, Sniper, uh, to Marsoc and Jason Delgado is the author. Jason, I remember two years ago, I think yes. it was, you told me about the book. I said we'd have you on radio, and here you are. Congrats on all your success. Thank you. And thank you for your service and for your incredibly uh, compelling stories here today. Everyone should go check out <laughs> Bounty Hunter 4-3 and Jason Delgado. Welcome back. Thank you, guys. I just want to put on out there that you were the only one to follow up with me. Even while I was in Afghanistan, you wrote to me and told me you're not you didn't forget about me. And as soon as the project came out to hit you up, that is true. You hit me up three (laughs) times in the last three years, four years to make sure that that's great. Uh, Your memory is sick. Thank you, sir. I commend that, sir. And I just want to say if anybody wants to follow me, you can go to Instagram uh, at J Delgado, A-R-T-E, J Delgado Arte. And thanks for all the support and the love. I appreciate it, guys. I really do. Okay. Um, Is uh, subparagraph E, and it says several of President-elect's nominees or senior advisors have Russian ties. Have you been in contact with anyone connected to any part of the Russian government about the 2016 election, either before or after Election Day? And I took that to mean as uh, 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 not any casual conversation, but did uh, I participate with Russians about the 2016 election, uh, that something was wrong? Every one of your previous questions talk about improper involvement, and I felt the answer was no. Jeff Sessions getting grilled today by the Senate Judiciary Committee we're just going to keep on going over the same territory with Sessions over and over and over again. Democrats using it as a, a prime opportunity for a tremendous amount of uh, grandstanding. And so once you're talking grandstanding and Senate Judiciary Committee, you know you got to hear from some Al Franken. Things got a little, a little bit testy between Franken and Sessions over the course of this session. Sorry. First it was, I did not have communications with Russians, which was not true. Then it was, I never met with any Russians to discuss any political campaign, which may or may not be true. 
Now it's, I did not discuss interference in the campaign, which further narrows your initial blanket denial about meeting with the Russians. Since you have qualified your denial to say that you did not, quote, discuss issues uh, of the campaign with Russians, what, in your view, constitutes issues of the campaign? Well, let me just say this without hesitation, that I conducted no improper cam uh, discussions with Russians at any time regarding a campaign or any other uh, item facing this country. They're going to keep asking him, though. It's never going to go away. Uh, they're going to, as, as long as Democrats view this as a politically advantageous narrative, you're going to keep hearing it. Um, it's not going to stop over and over again. This is going to be the expectation that we should, should, this is the expectation we should all have here. And I just have to wonder at what point is it, is it going to seem a little too crazy? I mean, if you believe that Jeff Sessions was colluding with the Russians to get Donald Trump elected, you will believe anything. You have no, to, to me, there is no intellectual credibility whatsoever in the argument that let's think about this, everybody. Jeff Sessions working with the Russians to help Trump get elected. Re- really? Yeah. No, that that's what they're I- implying, if not outright declaring. That's what they that's what they want to do. And. You know, there's there's such a, a divide right now with uh, the media that will cover, speaking of Russia, all of the recent reporting. I talked about it yesterday on the show at some length about how the Trump, I'm sorry, about how the Obama administration not only refused to do anything about Russian meddling in the U.S. uranium, which is U.S. nuclear sector, right? I mean, this is this ties into the the whole issue of nuclear energy, nuclear security, uh, not only was the Obama administration not willing to bring to light that there was a Russian plot underway to bribe people, engage in corruption, violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, all kinds of stuff going on. Not only was that happening, but now, latest report I saw today was that the Obama administration threatened a witness to all of that Russia corruption that tied directly into the Clinton Foundation to Hillary to Bill. Yeah, that's right. I want to get a lot of money uh, tied directly into them. A witness wanted to come forward, and the Obama administration was threatening the witness. You know, you better not. You know, you signed some kind of an NDA or something I, from when he went to to the Justice Department. This guy blew the whistle of the FBI, and then according to the reports I was reading today, FBI DOJ, what's a DOJ call? They were like, well, you better not say anything about this. Why can't people why can't the American people know if there's a there was one low level prosecution, but we could have known much more about the extent of this. Remember, this is trying to influence U.S. businesses. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, team. I I wanted to talk to you about this story that uh, I think has somehow stayed uh, well below the radar, and, and it shouldn't. Um, if you haven't heard about it, I'll give you the background, and then I'll tell you what I think is uh, involved here and what it tells us. You have a, uh, a U.S. judge 
has ordered, a federal judge has ordered the Trump administration to allow uh, for a, an illegal immigrant, they're calling her here in this Washington Post piece, an undocumented, undocumented teen, a 17-year-old illegal immigrant to have an abortion while she is in federal government custody. Um, so, and they're referring to her just as, because she's a minor, as, as Jane Doe. So we don't have her name, don't have any uh, particular information on her background other than she's from Central America. She's 17, she's pregnant, and she wants to have an abortion, and she's currently in federal custody. And this makes Democrats very, very angry. They view abortion as a right. They view abortion access as something that is uh, never allowed to be uh, truncated or, or limited in any way. And I think while the political realities have sometimes prevented Democrats from being open about this, they believe that you should be funding abortions with the federal government's money. The federal government should be paying for this procedure for Everyone in this country, including illegals, including illegals. I should just note, as, as I was going through this story, uh, there's so much dishonest language that the left uses in all of this. And there are all these different uh, terms and, and the, the way that they describe this. It's very clear what side the media is on when it comes to the issue of life, when it comes to issues of Uh, of abortion. Uh, The uh, Washington Post shared this story earlier today. That's what caught my attention. And they they referred to the federal judge blasting the Trump administration attempts to deny abortion for a pregnant, undocumented teen. Um, First of all, there's the abortion component of this discussion, and there's also the illegal immigrant component of it. Let me take the second part of it first, right? Let's talk about the illegal aspect here, which is now if you come to this country from anywhere in the world and you're illegal, um, you have the right to demand any any and all rights that liberals believe the Constitution grants, including the right to an abortion. That seems to be a, that seems to be a stretch. Um, Now, I, I know in the details of this, uh, there is uh, the argument is being made, at least based on the details, as I see here in the Washington Post piece, that this woman, according to the judge, um, that that the uh, the government is preventing her. She would use money through a court, a court uh, appointed guardian to cover the expenses. Uh, quote, uh, Chutkin, who is the judge here, countered during the hearing Teenager does not need a medical emergency to exercise her right to an abortion. She said the teen had followed state and federal rules. She obtained permission from a state judge in Texas to have an abortion and would cover the expenses herself or with help through her court-appointed guardian. So I don't know who this court-appointed guardian is. It sounds to me like the, the guardian is going to pay for this. I don't know who the guardian is. The court has appointed one. But the the left is pushing very hard on this issue. ACLU is involved. You've got Democrat members of Congress writing letters. They're all upset about this. And, you know, there's, as I said, there's the issue of what rights does an illegal immigrant have? And if an illegal immigrant shows up and wants to have elective surgery, does the taxpayer cover that while they're in custody? So if you show, I mean, I'm just trying to understand what the limits are here. If, If an illegal immigrant comes to America 
and they're in custody and they're not supposed to be in the country. They violated U.S. law knowingly and willfully. And they say, but, you know, I've got this uh, I've got a heart condition. So um, I'm I would like a I would like heart surgery before I go home. Do, do we have to do that? I think Demo- I think the Democrat line is, of, yes, of course, we have to do that, which really just means that we then have to pay for anyone's health care from anyone around the world who comes to America. Uh, the point about who is going to pay here. Look, it's tricky. The Post is a pro-abortion, a, a pro-abortion paper. The New York Times is a pro, unabashedly pro-abortion paper. And when you read, when you're relying on their reporting on the issue, and I, I wish I'd gone into, uh, I didn't have the time today as I came back into New York to go into the actual transcripts of the court proceedings. I'm also not a, a legal analyst. I'm not a somebody who just watches what's going on with the courts all day. But I would like to get into the, to more of the details here because I find that you, you can't trust the reporting of Democrat leftist papers like The Post and The Times and others whenever the issue of abortion or immigration are involved. When you've got abortion and immigration together, you know they're lying to you. You know they're using words to misconstrue the situation. You know they're holding back information that does not support their argument. But even beyond then the, the legal realities of this, and keep in mind that the legal reality is all based upon the completely fallacious notion that the Constitution says that a woman, because of the right to privacy, has a right to an abortion. I mean, that's just, that is a terrible and evil lie that has been around for a long time. And even honest, socialist, leftist, legal scholars that I know. I knew one actually in college, a professor at Amherst, who would say, yeah, I mean, Roe v. Wade is is just garbage law. It's garbage law, no matter what you think of abortion. But what you see here with the the, an issue that brings together um, abortion and illegal immigration is you have these two I, I i hesitate to use the word sacred because what you're talking about in the case of abortion is actually so wrong uh so evil but sacred to the democrats you know it is it is a uh, it has been described by other writers and commentators i know as a, as a sacrament of the democrat party and that is said um with a kind of dark humor because of what is involved here but you know, I, I can say this, that while the ACLU is battling it out to make sure that a 17-year-old girl can make a decision that I think she'll probably end up regretting for the rest of her life, there are only certain things that I can uh, go to sleep and know every night after I've done this show are true. And one of them is that if I can convince just one person who is listening to this show live or listening to it on a podcast or however, whenever, one person listening to this show to actually just have the baby that they're thinking about not having. And we'll have really made all this worthwhile. And I also know that if one person listening to the show, and I'm hoping it's would be more than that over all the years I've been doing this, if one uh, woman listening to this show decided to have the child and uh, in Years time felt like I had I had led her astray. I had mis- misled her by by helping to convince her without speaking to any one individual. Right. But just from listening to me talk about the issue that I would be I would be happy to take whatever blame she would want to throw my way, because I am so certain that in time uh, she would feel like she had made 
by having the child, you have made the uh, the right decision, the the, the moral and uh, ethical and, and godly choice. Um, so whatever the ACLU does here, whether they win or don't win on this case, uh, it seems to me like this federal judge has now threatened contempt for anyone who would stand in the way of a 17-year-old girl who's, who's having a, an abortion. Also, the ACLU is very upset that anybody was even notified, any adult or court-appointed guardian, I believe, notifying that she was pregnant and going to have an abortion. Um, this is a deep moral rot uh, within American society today, this notion that that there's something inherently uh, right and good about women terminating their pregnancies. And, and this is it's beyond it's beyond the parameters of uh, me being on a on a talk show here. It's beyond the parameters of, oh, you know, what, what do people think about this? How does this go for my career? You know, uh, am I am I making a good enough case? That's all doesn't really matter. There's just a, an underlying truth here. The underlying truth is that uh, life is sacred and everyone should do everything they can to support it and. I would hope that anybody listening to this who's ever maybe even in the future faced with the choice would uh, make the choice to just simply put, um, have the baby. Have the baby. Don't get led astray by the media, by the ACLU, by the Democrat Party, which has uh, really made a a pact with Satan on this. And I don't speak to you in fire and brimstone terminology. I'm not somebody who's Showing up to try, and I know you get what you need in that on uh, on that issue on Sunday, or for some of you, that's not something you're into at all, or, or maybe you get it a different day of the week. But the religious side of life—that's not something I talk to you about here on the show. But this is about ethics. I mean, this is more. This is natural law. You don't even have to believe in a deity to understand that this is wrong. What is going on in this country? And uh, I don't spend a lot of time on the show talking about it because it's honestly upsetting to me. I know it's upsetting to a lot of you. I know that you've had a long day and you have yourself and families to take care of. And I try to uh, keep the show not just informative, but also entertaining. And this is obviously uh, very disconcerting. It's depressing. But when you see how much the Democrat Party rallies around getting a scared, illegal immigrant 17-year-old girl in abortion, and you see the ferocity with which they want to push and make sure that this is the choice that she makes, it's hard not to come away from it and feel like there is um, a, a central moral stain on the Democrat Party right now, that it is um, it has gone far astray and is, is not a force for good in the world, my friends. It is not, not on this issue. And uh, not on some other issues, too, but on this one, there will come a time. It might not be in my lifetime, but there will come a time in our future. And I think actually science will be supporting it uh, at some point when we'll look back on issues like this, cases like this, moments in time, like when a 17 year old girl is in federal custody and you have powerful people in our society, powerful organizations that are just rushing to make sure that she can get an abortion. And they will. People will look back at this and say, "How barbaric that is." Uh, I am certain, and it will take time. I am certain that at one point in the future, we will, America or whatever this country is called, then, because given what's going on these days, who knows how things are going to look. We'll look back on this and we'll think about it in a similar way that we think about um, you know, human sacrifice, slavery, just deep, odious 
moral failings. Now we say, well, that would never happen now. We've finally gotten past that. We will get past uh, the abortion lobby one day. We will get past this, but it's going to take time. And unfortunately, in the process, uh, countless people are uh, losing their lives, the unborn. I know I, I said I would get into some history, and I want to, but I just I couldn't uh, pass over this without some comment here. I see that over at MSNBC, uh, one of the hosts, Stephanie Rula, I don't know her. I'm not familiar with her or her work. Uh, but she took time on her show to honor the fallen Green Berets in Niger. Um, and that is, as anyone listening to the show knows, I, I applaud whenever the media decides to show some uh, additional deference and respect to those who are serving, and especially those who have been lost in the service, uh, who died fighting for their countries. But I also can't help but think about how uh, here is an MSNBC host who I believe has a let me see. Uh, she she went in and told the backstories of these individuals who were lost. This is all to the good, and and I'm I'm pleased to see that MSNBC has such an interest in uh, the troops and and those who those who have fallen in battle. But it also seems to be kind of a new phenomenon over at MSNBC. Uh, I paid pretty close attention during the Obama years and, in fact, made some, you know, tried to bring some attention to this, that there were uh, a vast majority of U.S. casualties killed in action in Afghanistan. Uh, it occurred under Barack Obama's watch. And I just want to know why did I never see a story on that in the entire eight years of Obama's presidency appear once on MSNBC? I never saw now I'm sure if you go back and you look in all the transcripts they could find something right they must have covered it somewhere I suppose but there's not just a perception I think it's a reality that the anti-war for uh, anti-war voices on the left were largely silenced during the Obama years and also the desire of the media to show combat fatalities uh, as a number on a screen to show the American people what's going on, I think that there was a, a pretty clear lack of interest in explaining to the American people what was going on in Afghanistan. I, I can tell you this. Most people that I talked to, including people over at CNN who are supposed to be very up on all this, because I, I had this discussion over there with some of their uh, journalists once, not on air, this was off air, um, but most of the people that uh, that are out there that are supposed to be up on all this don't even know that there was a spike in KIA in Afghanistan under Obama's time in office. It's hard not to feel like when a channel like MSNBC that you know is, is so clearly partisan takes such an interest in a a military incident like this. It's not driven largely by politics over any actual sense of an obligation to inform the American people and uh, show them deference on air for those who are falling in battle. I, I mean, I, I feel free to correct me if you think I am wrong on this one, but I, I do not remember any hosts over at MSNBC once, once 
in eight years of Obama's presidency, when we were taking heavy casualties in Afghanistan, double the casualties of the Bush years. We're taking heavy casualties in Afghanistan. I do not remember MSNBC doing moments of silence. I do not remember. And look, the answer is that we should always be showing respect to veterans. The answer is that we should always be showing respect for those who are fallen in battle. It's not, you know, oh, well, they didn't do it then or they should do it now or that's it's not it should never be an either or situation. So in a sense, yes, okay, they're doing it now and doing it, showing respect is a good thing. But I can't help but notice that it is also right now politically advantageous to highlight this issue because of the narratives around it that Trump is, you know, un, unfeeling, uncaring, doesn't care about the doesn't care about the troops. I also know from every veteran that I've spoken to, and maybe it's because there's a maybe there's a sample bias because a lot of the veterans I know are are uh, staunch conservatives, but not I don't think all of them are. And every veteran that I speak to, if you ask them, who would you rather? Who do you think is at his or her core more supportive of the military, President Trump or Hillary Clinton? They would all say President Trump. I, I, just, I think that there's theatrics at work here with some of these media types, and I, I, it's very disconcerting. I just saw before on the screen uh, over at uh, CNN, uh, formerly Clinton News Network. Now it's, you know, I don't know, just anti-Trump network. Uh, but I saw the segment where they one of the, uh, what is it, Anderson Cooper was doing, the keeping them honest, that the White House is politicizing. The White House says don't politicize soldiers' deaths and then is politicizing them. Well, the media is politicizing this all over the place. And if they were the guarantors of our freedoms and if they were the staunch defenders of the republic that they like to pretend they are, especially when it suits their purposes in discussions about the Trump administration, you'd think that they would take the high road of this and just say, we, we respect Gold Star families, we respect the fallen, we respect the sacrifice of those who have died in battle for this country and those who have served this country. And that's it. They don't need to be trying to referee every comment or every comment on a comment about Trump and all of this stuff. So I that just really struck me that here they are and the left is uh, is trying to score as many points as they can. All right. Uh, let's talk. Uh, let's change it up here. Let's talk a little history because it's been a, a bit of an intense hour. So I'll tell you about the siege of Vienna in 1529 because it just happened a little while ago. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. The Siege of Vienna, October of 1529. Actually, started a little before then, but it ended on October 15th of 1529. So if, if we had had a show, it was on a Sunday. Otherwise, I would have done it on the anniversary of the end of the siege. But uh, here's a, a quick a quick deep dive into what happened, a little bit of a, a history deep dive for all of you listening. So I've talked to you in the past about the cross versus the crescent, the series of battles between the Ottoman Empire and the Christian states uh, that stretched out over centuries and get very little discussion, very little treatment in most college and high school curriculums. Uh, and the expansion of the Ottoman Empire into Europe, the jihad, in fact, in, into Europe, the attempt to seize key strategic nodes for the purposes of conquering all of Christendom, that was going on for 
quite some time before finally the Ottoman Caliphate fell apart after the First World War. Um, but we're talking 16th century here at really the height of the Ottoman Empire's powers. And the siege of Vienna was the first of two, uh, first of two major campaigns to take that city. Uh, so it's just as as way of background here, by 1529, things weren't looking so good for Europe, for the Christian forces. The Ottomans already had all of the Balkans, Bulgaria, and Greece under their control. Vienna was only 100 miles from Ottoman-controlled territory. Uh, Vienna was a strategic target for them. It is on the Danube River, which connects the heart of mainland Europe to the Black Sea. It's also the longest river in all Europe, and it stretches like an artery through the heart of Europe itself. If you seize this location on the Danube, you could then move not just goods and commerce, but large numbers of troops for future military campaigns to conquer Europe all the way to the uh, north and western coasts of the European continent, which was the plan. There was the Battle of Mohats in 1526 before this, where you had some of the best troops of the Kingdom of Hungary, which at the time was actually an important power. Uh, They were slaughtered, uh, 10,000 infantry and 4,000 cavalry killed in one day. And in fact, uh, Louis II of Hungary uh, was killed while trying to flee that, that battle. Total annihilation. The Ottomans annihilated the force against them at Mohats in 1526. So the Kingdom of Hungary got split up then. And you had the uh, Archduke Ferdinand of uh, Austria, and also the brother of Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in play here. Hungary was a frontier province. Um, it is uh, split up, and it, it, it was split up, and it was now a place where the Ottomans realized that they were making forays into Europe itself. So they wanted to move on Vienna. And in 1529, they finally get together the force to do so. You have an Ottoman army of over 150,000 marched from Bulgaria starting on the 10th of May, 1529. You had Spahis, who were the elite noblemen and cavalry of the Ottoman Empire, and the Janissaries, uh, along with... Balkan auxiliaries that were picked up along the way. And Suleiman the Magnificent, Suleiman himself was commanding this army. Probably the most famous and most powerful uh, Ottoman sultan of all time. Uh, So he declared a jihad, a formal holy war against Habsburg, Austria, and Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, So... There's a huge jihad of 150,000 en route to Vienna as of early summer and late spring of 1529, and they have to move large artillery pieces. This comes into play later. 300 artillery pieces were part of the caravan, part of the baggage train, and because of difficult weather, they had to leave some of it behind. Uh, On the way, Suleiman's forces captured Buda, which later became known as Budapest, capital of Hungary, a very uh, old city in Eastern Europe, and I, I hear actually quite nice to visit. Then we turn our eyes to Vienna, the bulwark of Christianity itself. So in Vienna, you have Austrian civilians fleeing in large numbers. They leave behind only 400 capable military-age males for the defense, and there are just crazy, frenzied preparations to make a 
stand in Vienna, realizing that if the Ottomans seized it, then they would be able to strike into the heart of Europe itself, and it was likely that the momentum would carry them to much further conquest of Europe. Basically, if the siege of Vienna 1529 had gone differently, you might be speaking Turkish, my friends, but I'll get there. Charles V, however, is not able to show up, so he's busy fighting the French, which was a common problem among the Christian nobles of the time. They should have been uniting against the threat of jihad and conquest from the Ottomans. Instead, they were often fighting each other, and some of them even made a separate peace with the Ottomans at different times. But Charles does send 17,000 Landsknechts. Uh, these are lance servants or grunts. They're German mercenaries from the Holy Roman Empire. And they were well known for their brightly colored clothing, the Landsknechts. People don't really hear about them anymore. Really a fascinating bunch. They were something of an imitation of Swiss pikemen. They were mercenaries. And the pike, which is a very long spear, at the time could be up to 18 feet long, was used in tight formations. And it essentially created a human porcupine effect, which was useful in stopping cavalry charges. And when you paired the pikemen with gunpowder weapons, so the front line would have these long spears and people then in the mobile square formation would also have uh, early versions of what would later be rifle, something called an arquebus. Uh, then they could hit from afar and they also were protected up close from cavalry charge, which had been a, uh, a constant menace to early stage in particular gunpowder weapons. The Lanskinecks also had uh, the Zweihander, two-hander in German, which is a broadsword, kind of like William Wallace. The Kriegmesser, which is a war knife. Uh, it looks like a cavalry saber. And they were best known, though, for their brash, rowdy, and provocative style of dress. These guys wore baggy pants, floppy hats and scarves, flowy shirts, lots of feathers, leggings of different colors. Kind of like German special forces of the time wearing capes and uh, brightly colored stuff. Um, so it was uh, it, it was surprising to many to see that this is an elite military unit of the time. But they had quite a reputation, a lot of bravado. And also they wore a protruding metal codpiece. And those of you who don't know what a codpiece is. I'll just say that you can look that one up on your own if you like. But it's a protective area for your – or protection for your area. Um, the Viennese were so freaked out about the impending out of an invasion that they melted down church treasures to pay the mercenaries. And overall command was left in the hands of a 70-year-old German mercenary named Nicholas of Psalm. He blocked off the gates, reinforced the walls, took the – basic precautions or basic defensive measures that you would expect. But they also signed something called the Oath of Vienna, the decision to fight until the very end, till their very last breath. The defenders in Vienna promised that they would die alongside one another in defense of the Christian faith. The Ottomans take quite a while to get there. They arrive in late September and the uh, Turkish light cavalry are the first to show up on the side of the city and they plunder the villages and engage in horrific slaughter. And even the Ottomans of the time, the Ottoman chroniclers said that the slaughter was uh, was horrific. They were trying to make examples of those civilians, of those villagers nearby. And so they confirmed that this happened. 
And Suleiman wanted the city to surrender, so he actually sent some prisoners. And the reason for this was that if the Ottoman sultan was able to get a city to surrender, everything inside was his. If his soldiers had to fight, it was tradition, it was expected that they would be allowed three days of plunder and pillage. The Viennese garrison says no. The artillery barrage from the Ottomans follows. It doesn't do quite as much because they had to, as as much as anticipated, because some of the heaviest guns got lost in the swamps and marshes along the way. Um, But the real military effort, the real fight in this conflict uh, was decided underground. It was subterranean. Earthenworks were essential in this process. You had the Ottomans digging a zigzag of trenches, and then they would dig underneath the walls with uh, these sappers, dig close to the walls to create a large chamber. They they wanted to fill it with gunpowder, light it, and boom, a section of the wall would crumble. No earth earth below the wall, no wall. It's a pretty straightforward tactic. Um, But the Viennese defenders saw that this was going to happen, and they sent out a major sortie of a few thousand to find and destroy these underground explosive chambers and those building them right away. They assaulted these trenches, which took the Ottomans off guard. And they didn't find the explosive area right away, but they found a prisoner. They tortured him. And they eventually found out where the main charge, where the, uh, the surprise massive explosion was being laid, because these earthenworks were massive. Think about this. Around the entire city, they're trying to trench and, and, and sap and dig. Uh, But they found out from this captive that at the Corinthian Gate, the massive explosion was planned. And it was here that a massive breach was opened up in the wall, 100 feet wide near the Corinthian Gates. But because of this intelligence they had procured from the captive, the mercenaries, their brightly colored brash uh, lance connects, were there. Their pikes were thick and efficient, and they were able to beat back the best of the Ottoman forces, including the feared Janissaries. On October the 12th of 1529, they were running low on food, so the sultan decided to go for an all-out assault. It was launched on October the the 14th. Two hours of intense fighting ensued, but the Turks came up against fierce resistance from, once again, the lands connects with their arquebuses and, and their pikes, and finally, with no ground taken inside the city and a uh, morale among his men that was dropping by the day, Suleiman decided that on October the 15th, 1529, again, I wish I had done this on October 15th, but it was Sunday, it was time to break camp and leave. Uh, There was a final harassing attack by Christians in what is today uh, Bratislava by the Viennese defenders. The sultan wanted to come back. Suleiman tried to return in 1532, but got bogged down fighting in Croatia. It was not until 1683, in the second great siege of Vienna, that the Ottomans would again threaten this key Christian stronghold. So the reason I'm telling you about this is that, you know, as we look today at the, at the uh, Islamic State and their defeat, which should be celebrated across the board, uh, there's such a lack of historical context given for what caliphates were, what they were trying to do, and the threat that at different times... The actual caliphate, a real caliphate, the Ottoman caliph, uh, posed to Christian Europe and the various efforts to conquer Europe by force and with the sword to make the crescent fly over the cross and to make Islam the religion of all of Europe and with it changing, of course, the entire trajectory of the world. These were aggressive 
maneuvers. These were conquest efforts. This was not defensive. This was not a response to a crusade. The Ottomans were trying to take Europe for themselves. Two efforts in Vienna, 1529, which I just told you about, then 1683. That ended with a massive, I believe the largest ever, it is believed to be the largest ever cavalry charge to finish off that battle. Uh, And that was uh, celebrated recently as well. That also happened uh, in October. That was celebrated in uh, in Poland, and I told you about that news story. But this was the furthest. I mean, Vienna was the furthest the Ottomans ever made it into Europe from the east. Uh, I've talked to you about the Siege of Malta here on the show in uh, 1565. That came later. They tried to move by sea because overland became too difficult to strike into Europe. So this is how you ended up with Ottomans trying to siege, uh, trying to seize Malta, which I discussed here on the show with the show with the Siege of Malta, and then later the Battle of Lepanto on October 7th of 1571. So this is a continuation of our discussions of Cross versus Crescent. I hope you found it uh, interesting and a bit helpful. I don't think you hear about it that many other places. Well, team, to close up the Freedom Hunt today, I just want to say that uh, it was a uh, an eventful and, and a worthwhile couple of days doing a, what, what are they called, a, a mid-Atlantic mini-tour, I guess. Uh, got to Spent some time in uh, Washington, D.C. Some of you saw me on Brett Baer's panel on Monday. That was uh, really, uh, really fun, and, and it was great to get a chance to meet Brett, who's among the very, very best in the entire business. Uh, and also on Tuesday, getting to do the show from uh, WCBM, which is a radio station, a great radio station in the Baltimore area. I did not get to spend as much time in Baltimore as I in the actual city as I had initially thought I would the area of Baltimore that I saw was it was right near the train station and I'd say it looked kind of like almost a a college town there was a university of Baltimore or maybe it's Baltimore College that was right there but uh, I definitely definitely enjoyed my little trip but you know I always miss the I always miss the freedom hut when I'm away from it for more than a day so it was good to be back here in New York City with the team. And, you know, there's no radio studio that's as comfortable as your radio studio. It's kind of like home. You know, there's no place like home. Where Whatever your home-based studio is, there's a certain degree of uh, re- relaxation and, and uh, chill factor that you get from being in your own place. So uh, with that, I also want to say that uh, I appreciate all the uh, feedback that I've been getting from you on the show. Uh, I did not get into a Team Buck Speaks tonight, so we'll definitely do one uh, tomorrow and probably on Friday, too. Uh, I think it's fun to have your voices on air, and, and I, I love it when I get the, oh, my gosh, you read my message on air. It's Yeah, exactly. That's what I, I keep saying. This is what we're going to do. We're going to uh, include, and, and we're going to set up an email address as well, because I know some of you are probably more email prone than uh, than Facebook message based you know we, we come at this in a multi-platform a multi-platform way multi-platform perspective uh, but yeah that was uh that was it oh and also when i was down in baltimore the house i was staying in i was staying with a with a friend uh there was a a big black lab that must have weighed over 100 pounds and i was thinking you know if, if I, he lived kind of out in the in the countryside uh and you know he had there were actually bald eagles on the property. It was pretty amazing. Um, he, it's really a farm outside of Baltimore. And uh, got to spend some time walking around in the fields. And uh, it, was, it was nice to have that little connection to the uh, more bucolic side of things. But, yeah, the, the black lab was definitely a highlight for me. I know I've got dogs on the mind these days uh, between... 
babysitting the half pit, half boxer, which amazingly enough, a bunch of you have them. I saw the uh, I saw some of the the messages and uh, that people were sending in of their own pit boxer miss uh, pit boxer mixes. So I didn't know that was a, a pretty common in New York City. They call it a designer dog. Woof woof, a designer dog. Uh, it used to be called a mutt, but I know mutt is probably now some kind of microaggression. You can't call a dog a mutt. Uh, you have to call it a. I think they call them. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, multi-breed uh, and or designer dog, if you want to get really fancy. So I'm still thinking about, it, but a hundred pound lab is gonna be a little big for New York City. I really got to keep it thirty pounds and below for the uh, for the the canine that will be uh, living with me in Manhattan at some point, hopefully in the not too distant future. All right, team. With that, uh, please do join tomorrow and uh, whenever you can after that. Facebook.com/slash/buck Saxon for your messages.